So we're going to spend some time studying the Bible now. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, open that up. If you don't, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. You could grab one of those, flip to around page 532. Uh, we'll be pretty close to 532, 531. We're continuing our Proverbs series. Um, I'm actually going to be out next week. Uh, so Terrell Davenport's going to preach for us. We're excited about that. He'll be continuing the Proverbs series for us. Uh, and then we'll be back the week after that. We're having baptism. So I just wanted to uh, talk about that again because it's coming up soon. If you are beginning to believe and trust and follow Jesus, but you've not been baptized, this is uh, a ceremonial washing with water to symbolize what Jesus has done in our heart. If you haven't taken that step as a disciple, we want to encourage you to take that next step to contact the church office, say, hey, I, I believe in Jesus. I haven't done this yet. I want to publicly show that I'm identified with Christ through baptism. We would love to make that happen, but we need to plan that ahead. Uh, so please call the church office or email office at begrace.org, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, all right, so we're going to continue our series this morning in Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 8 this morning. We've called the series Scandalous Wisdom because we believe God is calling us to live differently, um, to love Him more than we love uh, being well-received or well-thought-of in culture. Um, now what we've said is oftentimes what happens is as we really walk with Jesus, we have a lot of good grace to give to others, but we want to steal our resolve to fear the Lord more than we fear anything else and to listen to his voice more than we listen to the voice even of our own desires and heart inside. This week, we're continuing into chapter eight and we're calling it delight in the beauty of wisdom. Delight in the beauty of wisdom. Uh, we keep coming back to this female metaphor. As we said, the primary audience of Proverbs is young men. And young men are often, not all the time, but, you know, often interested in women. Find women very attractive. And so this metaphor is being used to say, you know what you should see is ultimately attractive? It's the wisdom of God. It's the voice of God. That should be the most beautiful woman in your life. Um, we all delight in different things. And God's made us that way. That's part of the joy of being human beings. There's different things that are beautiful. We, we delight in beauty. My wife and I love whenever we can, to get away to the mountains. We just find the mountains, Colorado mountains especially. We love the East Coast mountains also. But just, we love the beauty of the mountains. We love to delight in the beauty of the mountains together. Uh, recently, with the rain on and off, we've been delighting in beautiful sunsets. So even here in Central Texas, one of our most beautiful uh, points of geography is the sky, right? We can enjoy the beauty of the sunsets. We, we all delight in different things. Not to embarrass you, but I delight in the beauty of my wife. I think my wife is very beautiful, right? It's a gift that God has given me from God. There are different things that God has put in our life that, that are beautiful, and we should praise him for it. But here, in chapter 8, we're being told to see wisdom as beautiful, to see this beautiful woman wisdom that calls out to us, to admire her, to adore her. So starting in chapter 8, it says this in verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instructions instead of silver 
and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. If you know the book of Proverbs, you know this is a parallel to the perfect wife at the end of Proverbs, who is also better than jewels. There's this play on our natural desire for beauty. And as I said, this is aimed primarily at young men, but it applies to all of us. It applies to all of us. What do you see as most beautiful in life? What do you see as most desirable? The Scripture challenges us, God challenges us to come to Him, to see Him as ultimate beauty, to see His voice, His Word, His wisdom as ultimate beauty in our life. So I want to pray that God would meet with us, that His Spirit would help us, because we're all distracted by the beauty, the bling of many other things. So let's pray that God would help us to see Him and His true beauty. God, we pray that you would meet with us now, that your spirit would help us to see clearly. Help us to see well and truthfully your beauty. God, we pray that you would be present with us, that we'd be reminded of your kindness. We'd be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the big idea is to delight in the beauty of wisdom, to see wisdom as beautiful, as this beautiful woman that is calling to us, inviting us into a relationship, a relationship of listening, of obeying, of partnering with the wisdom that God has used both to make the world, but also to lead us in our everyday life. So as we move through the text, we're going to see three things that wisdom does that make wisdom beautiful. Um, Wisdom initiates. That's the first beauty of wisdom. Wisdom initiates. The second beauty that we'll see is that wisdom gets it right. Wisdom gets it right. There's a play on words in the Hebrew of uh, perversity and righteousness that is straightness and crookedness. So this is a, a connotation. It's mixed together in Hebrew. Many different ways of saying righteous that align with straight and true and right and proper. Uh, And then crookedness or evil is often like uh, crooked and not going in the right direction. So there's this kind of uh, physical concept of rightness and straightness. The third point is that wisdom, this is the weird one, sorry. Wisdom is cosmically fundamental, okay? Cosmically fundamental. So we'll come back to that one at the end. Number one is that wisdom initiates. Wisdom initiates We see this in verses 1 through 5. I already read those, but my summary is this. Wisdom is calling out to us. She's gone out to the streets. She's saying, hey, pay attention. Here I am. Look at me. Listen to me. Wisdom initiates in our life, which is a really beautiful analogy to Jesus himself. Right? We see this in Philippians chapter 2. We have to recognize that we often think of God in deistic ways. Deism says that God's like this watchmaker that spins up uh, the universe and then sits back and doesn't do anything. We, We have to recognize in our own hearts this idea that God's not actively involved, but the Scripture says God is actively involved. The Scripture says in Philippians 2 that Jesus left the perfection of heaven and entered into our world. If you struggle with suffering, know that the God of the universe has suffered like you and with you. If you struggle with the distance of God, thinking he's not there and he's not talking to you, he's silent and he doesn't initiate, look at Jesus who came and took your sin and my sin upon his back, who died in our place as a substitute, as a sacrifice. Wisdom initiates. The word of God initiates. God himself initiates. He is coming into your life. Will you respond? Will you respond to the initiation of God's word, of God's wisdom.
As I said, we see it in verses 1 through 5. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrances of the portals, she cries aloud. We have this vision of her going to the busy spots, the crossroads, the gates, the portals. Kind of sounds like ancient language to us, but just think of the busiest place that you ever frequent. God is calling to you there. Wisdom is speaking to you. God is not silent, but God is speaking. And you can either ignore him or you can listen and take heed and pay attention. Um, I was talking about the deistic framework, how we kind of think God's not there. But that's just the world we live in. It's important to recognize the culture that we live in because it invades our theology because it's just so pervasive. It's in our magazines, it's in our movies, it's in our thinking. It's just there all the time that we have to recognize, oh, there's this natural thing built into me, into the fabric of this culture I live in that's telling me, preaching at me day after day, God's absent. He's not there. He's not actively involved. But the scripture says otherwise. He's actively involved. He initiates. He speaks into our life. He invades our life. He pursues us in love. I think this also then filters its way down into our psychology, like how we actually see other people. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to initiate with other people? How there's this hesitation? How we often want to wait until other people initiate with us? I was thinking about this with dating. I grabbed a picture of a little kind of notes you might pass in school. Do you like me? Check yes or no. Anybody ever get one of these notes or pass one of these notes? I was thinking about it. Like, I dated a lot of girls uh, in my teen years, and I don't think I dated a single girl that I didn't already know someone had said, oh, yeah, she likes you. Okay, it's safe. Then I'll ask her out. Isn't that terrible? There's only one girl that I ever asked out I wasn't sure about, and she stayed with me now for almost 30 years, so (laughs) it worked. So there's some bravery that paid off there. Hopefully that's encouraging to you. But in full recognition, that was only once. I only asked a girl out once when I was unsure whether she liked me or not. The rest of the time, I waited. I was scared to initiate. Wisdom's not like that. God's not like that. He initiates. He comes after us. He pursues us. He's knocking at the door. That's what Revelation 3 says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Are you going to let me in? Are you going to open the door? How about you? Do you recognize the initiation of God's wisdom in your life? Do you initiate? Do you look like God in this way? Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? She's yelling, right? This is a good kind of yelling, not a bad kind of yelling. This is taking it seriously. Beside the way, the crossroads, beside the gates, the entrance of the portals. This is what she cries. Verse 4 and 5, she says this. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. What does that mean? Human beings. All human beings. Listen up. This is not just for religious people, right? She's not saying, hey, I really want to talk to those of you that are upstanding good citizens. I'd like to talk to all the conservative people, please. I'd like to talk to the religious people. I'd like to talk to the people that have already kind of halfway cleaned up their life. Those of you that have gotten yourself halfway, I'm talking to you. I'll finish it for you, okay? That's not the message. It's to everyone. To those of you that are running as fast as you can in the other direction, God's calling to you. To those of you that are pretending you're running in the direction of God by cleaning up your life and thinking you've got it all together, but really you don't, you really need God's help, she's talking to you as well. All of us, she's crying out, come to me, listen to me. 
Will you respond? Will I respond? Will I listen to the voice of wisdom? Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense. This is not just for the smart people. Wisdom is not for the wise. Truth is not for the lovers of truth. It's for those that are needy and broken and empty. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll be filled. Do you feel that ache? Do you feel that emptiness? Do you feel that longing? Wisdom is initiating. Wisdom is pursuing you. And wisdom wants you to say, okay, (laughs) I surrender. Yes, I open the door. I'm going to let you in, God, to my life. So two responses, I think. Number one is to just say, okay, right? That's the number one response. I want all of you to tap out on the mat. That's the wrestling term, right? Like I give up, I surrender. Just say, okay, or, or open the door, right? Whatever image you're thinking of, just say, okay. All right, God, you want to have a relationship with me? Okay. You, you surrender. You say, yes. Now in Christianity, we really want to stress the importance of the cross because that's at the heart of that relationship because what's keeping you from surrendering is your sin. So what happens is your sin really does separate you from God. It really does separate me from God. And we have different responses that we play out, right? Sometimes we say, okay, I'm separated from God, so I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll be really, really good. I'll build a bridge to God. That's called religion. I'll just fix it. But it doesn't work. The only person that can build a bridge to God is Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the bridge. Trust in him. The other way we try to deal with that separation is say, I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to go get drunk. I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to go indulge. I don't want to think about it. I'm going to get high. I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I just don't want to deal with it. I want to have fun. That's the non-religious way of dealing with sin. Those people also, all of us, whether we're religious or non-religious, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is cross, surrendering to him personally. So don't hear this wisdom calling to you as an abstract principle. Recognize this is God himself speaking to you, knocking on the door of your heart. If you open the door, I'll come in and and be with you and you with me, and and things are going to be cool, and we'll work it out together. We'll grow together. That's what Jesus is inviting you towards. I also want to call on you to begin looking like wisdom. So not just responding to this initiation, but becoming an initiator. In what ways can you be an initiator like wisdom? In what ways can you speak into other people's lives? It can be as simple as walking across the room and just shaking someone's hand and saying hello. Seeing someone who's sad and smiling at them and listening to them. Wisdom initiates. Wisdom moves into other people's lives. Just to translate this a little bit, if you're an extrovert, that means 10 people. If you're an introvert, that means one person, okay? But it's the same thing, right? It's still initiation. It's still moving into someone's life. Just saying, hey, what, what's going on? Can I pray for you? It's initiating. It's, it's moving towards people in love. Now we have corporate needs of initiation here at the church. Heather was just talking about the training tonight. We have a children's ministry. One of the most beautiful ways that you can initiate is representing Jesus to children. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't cast them out. Don't push them aside. Culture says to push them aside. 
Culture says to push them over here, let experts take care of them, let other people deal with them, maybe just abort them, get them out of the way, right? That's what our culture says. Children are just a nuisance. Jesus says they're valuable. Jesus says we want to serve them in love. Have you ever thought about the biology of this? I've, I've read this in, in different places that people are like one of the, the few animals in the animal kingdom that are completely dependent on other people. You know, like you see a giraffe being born and then all of a sudden it's walking around. Like, that's crazy. That's not how humans work, right? Humans are so helpless. You ever wonder why God did it that way? He wants to train us to initiate. He wants to train us to serve, to show grace. And our children's ministry is a fantastic place for you to train yourself to be more like Jesus to learn to speak Bible stories, y'all, it's horrifying. It's one of the scariest things in the world. I do it every week. I still get scared every week when I do this. But that teaches you to depend on God's grace. You're like, okay, I need to read this more, and I need to pray more. Okay, I'm still scared. I need to read it a few more times. I need to pray a few more times. But it is such a fantastic way to grow in your faith, to learn to depend on Jesus as you teach a story to children. That training is tonight at what time? Five o'clock. All right. See, sometimes it's good to have the wrong time on the slide because then we really get it clear. No, it's five o'clock and there will be food. And here, here's the thing. You can just show up. You can just show up even if, even if you're not sure, right? Just come and say, I know that they need help in the elementary. I know they need help in the nursery. I just want a free meal. So I'm going to come, show up, check it out. And then you can make your mind up after that, okay? They might be mad at me for saying, but I'm just going to say that because... Here's the deal, just um, in a kind of church-wide thing, this is, this is another level down. Our church is growing uh, more quickly right now than it's grown since we first planted the church, right? You know, we, had the, we planted a church and kind of dropped down a little bit, and then right after we planted a new church, we had the pandemic and dropped down some more, right? And so we're kind of starting over in this cool starting over period. It's really exciting, like lots of new people coming, more people coming every week than ever before. It's growing and growing and growing. We love that. We're glad you're here. We have a smaller percentage of people plugging into um, elementary and nursery ministry in comparison, right? Just a smaller percentage. So, so we, need to, we need to do something to increase that. So would you at least pray about it? Would you at least do that for me? Pray about getting involved, showing God's initiation with our children's ministry, with the nursery. It could be a great way to practice serving like Jesus served us. Okay, the second point is that wisdom gets it right. We see this in verses 6 through 21. Wisdom gets it Right. As I said before, I don't know how clearly I was saying this, uh, a lot of the words for evil are kind of physical crookedness. A lot of the words for righteousness are physical straightness. So it's, it's a bit of an idiom or a metaphor that comes through in the Hebrew. Uh, and he's going to use a lot of different synonyms and antonyms and different words piling up in this section, verses 6 through 21, about righteousness versus evil, about straightness versus crookedness. So wisdom gets it right. Uh, my wife shared a definition of wisdom that she's heard from other teachers and she's used as she's teaching her high school students. Uh, wisdom is learning to discern the difference between right and almost right. Have you ever thought about that way? Between right and almost right. Wisdom is beautiful because wisdom gets it right. Think about things that you find attractive. Those are the things that you're just like, ah, that's the way it's supposed to be, Right? Whether it's a, a woman or a truck or a sunset, you're just like, ah, yeah. Like, that, that's it. It's right. It's beautiful. 
So chapter 8, verse 6. Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. This word is a little weird thing in the Hebrew here. The rest of it's pretty clear, but this one thing, I'll speak noble things. Literally in the Hebrew, it's like, hear me, I will speak princes and kings. So they translate it to make a little more sense. I will speak noble things. But it's, it's literally like, like nobles, princes, kings, leadership will come from my mouth. I will speak what's right. Verse 7, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. We keep seeing this fear of the Lord. It's the foundation, right? This relationship with God. Like, God's more important than anything else. That's my basic definition of the fear of the Lord. What's most important in your life? What's biggest in your life? What's the heaviest thing in your life? What's the greatest thing in your life? What's the most beautiful thing in your life? Those are all ways of translating the fear of the Lord. Awe trembling before God. What's the thing that gives you goosebumps? What's the thing that makes you shake? What's the thing that is overpowering to you? We're called on to see God as ultimate. The fear of the Lord. And what does that result in? Well, the fear of the Lord results in the hating of evil. The longing for rightness and straightness and the hatred of that which is crooked and broken. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So verse 15 and 16 are saying, anytime you see a righteous rule, a good leader is using the principles of justice and wisdom to lead. This word wisdom in the Old Testament is a tricky word. And we were talking about it this week as I was working through the sermon with the staff. Uh, The word can mean anything from just obeying God's moral order to the beauty of a craftsman that makes art, right? Bezalel and Oholiab in the Old Testament and Exodus had wisdom to make beautiful art, and they were used by God to, to build the tabernacle and make these beautiful art pieces, right? That's wisdom, making things according to the beauty of, of creation and the way God's designed the world. But it's also moral order. Both things are wisdom. Leadership, good government is done from wisdom. So that's verse 15 to 16. Verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. So here's a promise. And some of these promises of blessing with obedience, of riches that goes along with wisdom are taken too far by Bible teachers in a movement called the prosperity gospel. So we want to kind of mark the false teaching, but then we want to come over here and say, but there's some true things about it, right? So the false teaching says that it's automatic. If you have enough faith, you'll be rich. If you do things righteously, you'll be rich. And it's an automatic one-for-one relationship. And that is taking it too far because Jesus, who is the most righteous, most wise, most faithful human being that ever lived, suffered and died for us. And he calls on you and he calls on me to pick up our cross and follow him. We're called to follow him in suffering. 
But that doesn't cancel this truth that's twisted in the prosperity gospel, that there is real blessing in obedience. Don't miss that. There's real blessing in obedience. There's real beauty. There's real rightness and straightness and trueness and good. So we don't want to miss that. And all of our emphasis on the glory of suffering and the beauty of the gospel, that we can't save ourselves by being right enough, we don't want to miss that there is, though, real blessing in doing what God says. And the more convinced we are of his kindness in Jesus, the more we're going to long to do what he says. And we're going to see that. And there's going to be real blessing there. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. So I hope you see how he, he kind of started with this like, yeah, there's riches in obeying the voice of wisdom. And then he moved to, but really wisdom's better than the riches. Do you see the distinction? That's really important. There's, there's riches in wisdom, but really wisdom's better than any human, earthly, temporary riches. And we're walking towards a future, Romans 8 says, we're longing for this future where all things are made right, where all things are perfected in Christ. So we're, we're moving into that future. That best life is in the future when we see Jesus face to face. So there's genuine blessing here as we listen to his voice and obey him, but there's also genuine suffering here because this is a world where, where the two things are mingled together, right? At the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven broke in to this broken world. And there's more and more good, beautiful things happening because of the resurrection power of Jesus. But that's not going to be complete and perfected until the end of all things. So we're looking forward to that consummation of everything coming together. That's the ultimate inheritance. The New Testament picks up this inheritance language and says the, the real inheritance is, is seeing Jesus face to face, is being with him in the end. But there's still real benefit in obeying him, doing things straightly and rightly in the here and now. This language of, again, righteousness versus perversity, I think is most clearly um, uh, demonstrated visually with the level. Uh, we have a level that we can use when we build things. I'm not the greatest builder, but I do have a level, one of my favorite tools to use where I can make sure things are straight, right? A level is this bar and it has a little bubble in it so you can make sure you're building something straight, right? So that the weight is equally distributed, so that the table or the shelf doesn't lean to one side or the other, so that it's sturdy, so that it's right. We say true when we build things, right. We use these words to talk about things being straight. Wisdom gets it right. So the question is, what's your level? We're told to see Scripture, the wisdom of God, the voice of God as our level. That's how we're going to get it right. And then our life will be more beautiful as well. There's real beauty in getting it right and in doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. When God says, this is a sin, but this is righteousness, saying, okay, I'm not going to do the sin. I'm going to do the right thing. Why? Because God told me. We don't always understand the connection between God's moral law and human flourishing. So Christians like to make the case, and I agree with this case, and I do this a lot, that really full human flourishing flows out of moral obedience to the commands of Christ. We, we try to say this again and again because this is under threat in our culture. The moral law of the Old Testament is the same as the moral law of the New Testament. The ceremonies are different. The morality is the same. And it's good and right and beautiful. And you won't fully buy into that 
unless you're convinced that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins. Once you're convinced that Jesus Christ has given his life for you and his resurrection power is flowing through you, you're going to trust God in a new and supernatural way. And you're going to want to do what he says. And when the moral law is under fire, as it is in our culture, there's this pressure to always be able to explain why what God says is a good idea. And we need to be willing to just say, he said it, you know, like... Like sometimes we're overly eager to explain the mind of God. And I, I'm sharing that as like, that, that's my temptation. I'm a why person. I'm always asking why. Sometimes we need to just do the what. What has he told us to do? Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm not sure why. I mean, he told me to, so I trust him. He's good. I love him. God is good. This seems kind of painful, but I trust him. It's going to work out okay. This seems kind of hard, but I trust him. It's going to be okay. Wisdom gets it right. Um, It's interesting. Sometimes it can be artful and surprising. Sometimes it doesn't seem immediately right. One of the best wisdom stories is in the Solomon stories to demonstrate his wisdom. I don't know if you're familiar with this story where these two women come to Solomon and one woman's baby died and she stole the other woman's baby. They were living together. She stole the other woman's baby and they're trying to decide what to do. And so Solomon's like, okay, well, bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half and you'll each get half of a baby. And of course, the woman that really loved the baby was like, no, 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 she can have it. And Solomon, in his wisdom, then was like, okay, now I know. Now I know who really cares about the baby. Now I know who has the true motherly love for the baby. Did Solomon really want to cut a baby in half? No. It didn't look right. It didn't seem right. But that was one of those artful demonstrations of what's really right. And I think sometimes in our life, that's our own experience. God's like, do this thing. Here's my moral law. It's going to be good for you. Follow me in in sexual purity. Follow me in in right business dealings. Obey me in serving your family in this way. And and we're like, that seems... That seems like that's going to take me off course, but I I trust you, God. I trust that it's going to end up in the right place. So how do we apply this? Well, I mean, the number one application is, is what is God asking you to do that you're resisting right now? Say, okay, God, I'm going to do it because I trust you. What has he revealed in his word, the collection of his wisdom, his voice to you, wisdom crying out to you, is the Bible. These 66 books compiled together. What is he telling you to do that you're like, I, I don't know, that sounds hard. So, okay, I trust him. I'm going to do it. Wisdom gets it right. How can we honor the rightness of wisdom? And then I also want to just address a cultural moment that we're struggling with here in our society, just the riches and the gold thing, right? Like our economy is nuts right now. I don't know, I don't know if y'all realize that. The economy is a mess. It's a big mess. And that can make us worry more about Gold and riches. Well, you know, we don't have gold. It's just paper money in our economy. But anyway, that's a whole other story, right? We can worry a lot about the economy. What should we be worried about? We should be worried about the voice of God. So the way it's said in Proverbs is, wisdom is better than riches. What are you going to invest in? Invest in this. I'm not saying like quit your job and don't care care about money anymore, right? I'm just saying don't worry about money. Worry about God's voice. 
listen to his voice, see that wisdom is better than riches. The way Jesus says it in Matthew 6 is do not be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? He says, everybody worries about these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but seek first the wisdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What I want you to see is listening to God's voice more than worrying about the economy is an active application of obedience to wisdom getting it right. The righteousness of God's word being preeminent in your life and my life. Do not be anxious, but trust God's voice. And then Philippians 4 adds a little application to this as well. When you are anxious, pray. Pray. God, I'm, I'm freaked out. Like, my retirement's gone. Uh, all my groceries cost twice as much. I'm, I don't know what to do. Pray. God, will you help me? Will you help me? So we're prioritizing his word. We're praying. We're talking to him. We're casting our burdens on him. Wisdom gets it right. Okay, third point. Wisdom is cosmically fundamental. This is my big, big word point. It's cosmically fundamental. What we're doing here is we're seeing the beauty of wisdom. We're supposed to see wisdom as this beautiful woman calling out on the street, the good woman in contrast to the prostitute or the adulterous woman. We're supposed to see wisdom as the most beautiful thing in our life. Whatever you think is most beautiful, take that as a as maybe some kind of like image and say, you know what? Wisdom's even better than that. Wisdom's more beautiful than that. And he kind of takes it down a level and says, wisdom's cosmically fundamental. Wisdom was there even before creation. So we go to the mountains, we're like, man, the mountains are beautiful. We look out and see a sunset. Like, man, the sunset is beautiful. And what we're supposed to see is that God's word even goes before as more beautiful, more fundamental than this cosmos, this created order that we see. We are to, to wonder and see it as beautiful. Creation is beautiful. We should do that. We should say that and glorify God for it. If we were to see his voice as more beautiful. This is theologically talked about as the distinction between a general revelation and specific revelation. There's just revelation everywhere. God's talking. He's here. He made it all. And then there's the specific revelation of his voice. And we're supposed to hear his voice as more fundamental. Calvin says, his voice is like the glasses that helps us to read the rest of it. We can't make sense of the sunsets apart from his revelation, that he's holy and he's gracious. As we see his voice in this revelation, then we can read the rest of the cosmos. Okay, verse 22. He says it this way in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. What is this saying? Wisdom was there before creation. Now, people argue about the language here because the language is kind of confusing because it's personification, right? So this is poetry. So I believe it's using language in a non-scientific way to tell us something important. I believe what this is telling us is that wisdom is one of the attributes of God, his voice, his reason, his thought, his law, how God has shaped the world. And so it was there with him from the beginning. I believe that's what we're taught about wisdom as you look at all the other Old Testament wisdom literature. And that this is merely a poetic personification of like, wisdom was his lady even at the beginning, right? But really it was an attribute of God. 
God is wisdom. It's with them since the beginning. So it was there before creation. It's not like God created the world and was like, oh, let me make this wisdom thing that people can use you know, to help them in their everyday life. No, wisdom is like fundamentally part of God there before the cosmos. So that's what I believe. Uh, if you have questions about that, we could, you could buy my lunch and we can talk about the Hebrew verbs uh, later in the week. Okay, verse 25. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Other translations say, like the architect. It was all built according to his wisdom, his plan, his genius, God's reason, his righteousness. So there from the beginning, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Again, this language of beauty. God delighted in wisdom. God makes things beautiful and God's like, this is beautiful, right? Go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter one. God made this and he's like, this is good. He makes this, this is good. God's delighting in himself, in the beauty that he makes. We are created out of the overflow of God's joy and delight. This is amazing. So God's revelation, his word, his wisdom, his thought is cosmically fundamental. It goes back before everything else. Another way to say this real simply, real personally, is God thought of you before you were even born. You're made according to his plan. And the whole universe is made according to his plan. And his plan is good and it's beautiful and it's delightful. I was talking to Joey about this and he sent me a picture of a sunset. Man, the rain has been amazing. This is like this golden glow. Have y'all seen that? Some of these nights after it's rained. um, For one thing, it's just sweet to have rain when it hasn't rained in like, it felt like two years. I think it was just, kind of just didn't rain all summer hottest muster. I was talking to some of the guys earlier. I was like, I feel like I can say out loud now, this was a terrible summer. Like now that it's over, because I hate to complain. I'm just one of those people, I don't like to complain about things, but it's like once you've gotten through it, you're like, oh, that was terrible. But the rain, I mean, it's just like the glow and the smell and like it's cooler. There's this be- these beautiful colors. We are to look at creation. You, you are commanded in scripture to look at the skies and say, God is good. To look at the mountains and say, God is amazing. He's beautiful. He built this. That's what you're made for. That's what I'm made for. So we should relish the beauty of God's creation. And what this passage is doing, this kind of second poem here within chapter 8, it's kind of like two poems put together. The second one is saying, man, creation's awesome. Creation is amazing. And God's wisdom is before that. It's more beautiful than that. It's like the architect that came before, you know. It's the beautiful artist that came up with the beautiful idea of this beautiful creation. So we are to praise creation and say, God is great. He is the creator, but his wisdom, his thoughts, his mind, his law, his order is even more beautiful. Wisdom is cosmically fundamental. It comes before even the cosmos, even the creation. Creation's beautiful. God is more beautiful. That's the simplest way to say it. So what do we... What do we do with that? Well, we should see it. 
we should praise God for it, both His creation and His Word. We should praise God both for the revelation that we see every day when we see the beauty of a, of a new sprout of grass or a flower and the beauty of His Word, His wisdom, and His righteousness. We can't live without either one. We're to praise Him for it. We're to honor Him for it. Verses 32 through 36 give the kind of final application here. Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Do you believe that God's word is this important in your life? I know I I struggle to take it that seriously. And I've devoted my whole life to this, right? But I I can drift. Really, God? He who fails to find me injures himself? When I neglect the Word, I'm injuring myself. When I neglect God's Word, I'm, I'm loving death. Whoever finds me finds life, obtains favor from the Lord. Blessed is the one, it says in verse 34, who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. What is that image? What would it look like in your life to really take God's Word that seriously? What would it take for you to, to watch at the gates of God's Word? To wait on God's Word. We talk a lot about this daily practice of reading Scripture. I encourage you to set aside time to read the Bible, to obey the Bible, right? To write in a journal like, oh, God's telling me to change this thing in my life. To pray the Bible. God, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying here, but will you help me to understand it? To worship God with the Scripture. To, again, verse 34, watch daily at the gates of wisdom to wait beside the doors of wisdom, or even opening the doors, opening the gates, memorizing Scripture. Um, We want to live our lives according to Scripture. We have this doctrine um, that's kind of falling out of favor, I think, in the modern world. It's called inerrancy. Anyone ever heard of this term, inerrancy? Raise your hand. Some of you have heard of this. What inerrancy means is we think the Bible is inerrant. What does that mean? It doesn't err. There are no errors. What does that mean? It's, it's true. It's right. It's cosmically fundamental. We have to live our lives by it. If we neglect it, it hurts us. If we listen, it helps us. And so one of the ways that you can express this belief that God's Word is true is by actually reading it. Start there, right? And then o- obeying it. Scripture's pretty clear. You don't really listen in, unless you obey talked about this before. In Greek and in Hebrew, the word for listen is the same word as obey. Not in our culture, right? We can listen all day and ignore things. In Hebrew and Greek, you haven't really listened until you've done what the voice has said. So we want to begin applying what he tells us. We want to live out this life of, of loving, trusting, and obeying God's word because it's cosmically fundamental, because it changes us, because it gives us hope. So we'll wrap up here. The big idea is that we should delight in the beauty of wisdom. And God's wisdom is everything from his moral commands to just simply how he's made the world, right? 
artists can be in touch with this. Sometimes artists can be in touch with the beauty of how God's made the world and yet neglect his moral commands. Others of us can obey his moral commands very diligently, but not live a beautiful life of, of compassion and grace in other areas, right? And God's wisdom encompasses all these things, brings all of this together. And so we see this personification in the Old Testament. People argue about what this means. As I said, I believe it's really just a personification of an attribute of God. And I believe that's all that's happening in Proverbs. But it does remind us of something bigger and more amazing that happens in the New Testament. And that's really the ultimate personification of God's word. We see this in John. In John chapter 1, it talks about how the word became flesh and lived among us, tabernacled among us, set up a tent, became one of us. God's word became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life that none of us could live. He died a sacrificial death for us. It says in John chapter 1 that this is how God's grace and truth, this kind of dual indicator of God's wisdom that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, this real grace and truth, it came through Jesus Christ. The only way we can really know it is by running to Jesus Christ. And so, we have this poetry that, that kind of shows it on a shelf from a distance. Look at God's Word. It's beautiful. And we should delight in its beauty. Listen to it. Love it. Obey it. And yet none of that's going to work unless you have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who's, who's come into this world, who is the Word made flesh, who is the personification of God's voice and God Himself, who says, I've initiated so clearly and so directly, I'm in inviting you to have a relationship with me, to ask me for help, to lean on me, to trust me, to walk with me. I'd love to talk to you more about this after the service. If you've never taken a step of, of faith in Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about what that means. But for all of us, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years or you're just beginning to understand his grace for you, we need to delight in the beauty of, of his voice calling out to us. He says, I love you. Come to me. Trust me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you invite us to delight in your beauty, in the rightness of your voice as you guide us. But thank you most of all that, that you're not just over there waiting on us to obey, but you've come into our lives. You give us the gift of yourself. So thank you for that. Shape us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.